I've got the enviable task or unenviable task of following after Jonathan, the, the big picture. But um, as the title, the rather awful title of my talk tells you, I want to tell you a little bit about the journey to getting where we are on the current sustainable development goals. And as been uh, told, they are very much draft and they're still being fought for at the moment. And as I think Jonathan's just said out there, there's a lot of very healthy scepticism about the utility of these types of global agreements. But uh, through my presentation, I hopefully can kind of present a few arguments why the post-2015 development agenda has been thoughtful, and then in particular why Goal 16, there's been so much advocacy around it. And yes, there are a lot of problems, but there's a lot still to play for. And then, as my title indicates, I want to provide just a little bit of insight into the political dynamics focusing on the perspective of the BRICS, particularly on Goal 16, who on this issue of peace, governance and justice have been quite vocally kind of resistant to its inclusion. So I guess the first thing to do is we sought to do today is kind of put 2015 in a larger context. It's not just the 70th anniversary of the UN. For the UN there are three major negotiations, a lot of overlaps between them, which are going to conclude this year. The first one is on financing for development, arguably one of the most important, which is very much focused on how are we going to pay for, how are we going to actually achieve the Sustainable Development Goal. The second one, which is the UN Summit on the Sustainable Development Goal, the post-2015 development agenda, which is where leaders will come together and endorse the Sustainable Development Goal. And the last one, I would say for me the most important one, is the climate change discussions, which follow on from Peru, which will take place in December in France. And that will really be a test of gauging whether there is a collective kind of commitment to mobilise, to act against climate change. So what's interesting is that there is so much going on in the UN, and in the same report that Jonathan just mentioned, the UN Secretary General wrote, never before has the world had to face such a complex agenda in a single year, and this unique opportunity will not come again in our generation. And at a time we know when the multilateral system is already under considerable strain, Failure to reach agreement on these negotiations will be another body blow to the UN's reputation. The potential consequences are many, and they include the acceleration and fragmentation of fragmentation and polarisation within the international system, which we're already seeing. I think a great quote came last year's UN General Assembly from Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India, who said, In spite of having a great platform like the UN, we still operate in various Gs, with different numbers like G4, G7, G20, and I think we'll see these trends continuing. In short, 2015 is very much a litmus test, I think, for the state of multilateralism. I guess then the question is, why post-2015? Why a new development agenda? There's a lot of debate about whether the NDGs worked or they didn't, who knows, but I think Multilateralism, as represented by the post-2015 development agenda, is something worth encouraging. We know they have flaws, and I'm going to talk about them. One analyst describes them as the only global, cross-issue, high-level, government-led conversation currently underway about the need for a transition to a more sustainable and inclusive globalisation. Indeed, I think most of the criticisms of the current sustainable development goal have been focused on the size of the framework, the substance of what's been agreed, the lack of resources for them, and most importantly, is there actually any political will to do this, rather than the idea of a global development agenda itself. What is clearer than ever is that future development will increasingly be shaped by challenges which require collective action at the global level. And I think these headlines, just these taken from the last couple of weeks, the issue of migration, 400 migrants dying on, from Libya, 
on a positive note, only over the last seven days, international cooperation springing into action far too late. It, news that Italy has saved 6,000 migrants in the last six days showed what international cooperation can do. I'm sure we're all familiar with uh, ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Syria, and only two days ago, Al Jazeera announced a new figure that in 2014 alone, 11 million internally displaced people were added to creating this figure of 38 million. In climate change, there's a whole, we could create a whole book on it, this was just two days ago, they announced that the drought in California has killed 12 million trees so far. And then a little bit on the election, uh, there was a poll showing that 58% of those polled felt that Conservative, Labour and Lib Democrat election pledges didn't go far enough on the issue of tax avoidance. And I bring these up because all of these issues, they all, they're all connected. Firstly, they all require action at the national level. But the national level action in isolation is likely to be ineffective. We'll need international assistance and cooperation. Second, none of these issues were included in the MDGs, but are important for development. So this is why the Pledge 2015 Development Agenda, or the SDGs, are important. They're an opportunity to change the discourse around development through the inclusion of issues that were excluded from the original MDGs. That's one kind of dimension. The other is about the changing nature of kind of global balance of power. And it gives international development a chance to evolve. And in this particular case, and more salient, I think, since the 2008 recession, recent research, for example, identified a hypothetical new G7, which is comprised of the BRICS and three of the so-called MIN economies, which have a greater purchasing power parity than the original G7. This growing economic power of non-Western states, and I think, Jonathan, you also alluded to it, has led to increased geopolitical competition and contestation unlike, in, in a way we've not seen for many years. And I think in a time of uncertainty about the global order, the idea was that the SDGs could provide a framework of shared norm for traditional actors, emerging powers, and other states to operate within and use as a reference point, and if you like, almost as an anchor. Importantly, and this is at the heart of some of the problems about the SDGs, and I think it was alluded to by Mark Manick Brown last night, the process around the SDGs has been much more inclusive than the MDGs. I spoke to a leading Indian diplomat where he works with the Prime Minister, who, talking about the MDGs, said, the MDGs sort of came from the sky. There was a modern-day Ten Commandments. You will do this, you will do this, you will do this. Interestingly, I think the SDG process has been marked by inclusivity, and that's at the heart of the problems about it. But in all UN member states are viewing it as endowed with more legitimacy than its predecessor. But it's not just about shared norms. It's also important to remember, despite the rise of the new G7, these countries continue to face pressing development challenges at home. And I think India is the clearest illustration of that. The poorest eight states in India contain more poor people than the poor, than there are in the 26 poor sub-Saharan African countries. Sorry, I kind of fudged that. But at the same time, these countries are also increasingly active global players and are fostering South-South cooperation as an additional engine for poverty reduction and growth. I think we're seeing, I don't know if you can see this here, but it shows how Chinese institutions are increasingly mirroring other institutions that we've got that are meant to be for all. And I think we've seen discussions around the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the much heralded BRICS New Development Bank. And I say this because the SDGs can kind of offer <coughs> guidance and a vision for how these newer actors can ensure sustainable development. Because what's clear is that they can't develop in the same way that Western states have. And it's about creating parity as well. I think it, 
it's incipient on Western states to also change the, how their patterns of growth occur. And then I think finally it's worth reflecting on this idea of universality, which is at the heart of the Sustainable Development Goals. The MDGs have been rightly criticised for putting most of the onus on action on developing countries, not developed countries, with the exception of MDGA. This obviously overlooks significant and often negative interlinkages between policy choices taken in developed countries and their impact in developing countries. So while the universality of the SDGs is somewhat threatened by the size of this framework, 17 goals, 169 targets, the fact that there is recognition of these interlinkages and broad consensus on the principle in relation to the post-2015 agenda is a welcome one and something that should be supported and encouraged. So in sum, there are kind of three main areas why I kind of feel that people have coalesced and worked towards the post-2015 development agenda. And what you'll see is there's similar themes, there's obvious overlap. And actually, looking at this, you said a beginner's mind is the best mind. I think you can see a lot of common sense here, but as we know, the pace of institutional change is very, very slow. And now I kind of want to talk more specifically about uh, goal 16 and why goal 16 is important. And I would start by kind of what do we mean by peace in the context of the SDGs? And it's not about the absence of violence alone. It's also about addressing a whole range of issues around justice, governance and inclusion in order to build a peace that is more sustainable. And I think Laura mentioned it in her talk earlier about the whole range of issues that need to be addressed. There are three main reasons why peace-building organisations have mobilised to fight for Goal 16. Firstly, absolute poverty will be increasingly concentrated in contexts affected by violence and insecurity. The Brookings Institute calculated the current percentage of people living in absolute poverty living in countries at risk of high levels of violence will increase from 37% currently to around 75% by the year 2030. One of the starting points of the SDGs is the eradication of absolute poverty. You can question whether that's achievable, but I think, I think we're all in consensus that that's something we should work towards. However, it means if we want to eradicate absolute poverty, the issues of conflict and violence are at the very forefront of the agenda. And then the next dimension of this is that the impact of violence and insecurity in these contexts won't be confined, they'll have ripple effects. You saw on the previous slide, uh, migratory flows are very much linked to conflict. And is it any surprise that the Ebola epidemic was particularly acute in Liberia and Sierra Leone, two countries recovering from prolonged conflict? Put simply, again, if we're serious about sustainable development, we must tackle violence and insecurity. And then lastly, and one of the most kind of convincing reasons I feel like a lot of organisations have united is that violence is a public health issue. And here it's worth distinguishing between conflict and violence. Conflict occurring in concentrated and accused state, whereas violence is much more prevalent. Consider that in the present day, around 525,000 people die violently every year. Of this, between 50 and 60,000 of these are dying in war zones. The rest Almost half a million are dying outside conflict zones. And put another way, that means that ten times more people are dying outside of war than inside war. So it highlights how we need to address issues of violence and insecurity if we're going to tackle absolute poverty, but how violence and insecurity in itself is something that we need to tackle head on. The SDGs are a potential vehicle to do that. Firstly, as I've mentioned, they're universal in their application. And then when we look at Goal 16 as it stands, and I encourage you, I've put the Goal 16 outside if you want to pick up a copy could be some great nighttime reading. Um, it includes targets that will require action both at the national and international level. Some of the targets look at the reduction of violence, access to justice, reduction of illicit financial flows and arms flows, 
combating organised crime, protection of fundamental freedom. So that's kind of why organisations have been fighting for Goal 16. Next, I want to turn to something that came, over, came up last night during dinner, which I thought was a fascinating conversation, which was the criticism about the SDGs. And I think you also alluded to it. And I think we're all very uh, frustrated by the process. And uh, this, this main bit here, The Economist, I was in negotiations about a month and a half ago, and it really was deadlock. And The Economist uploaded it on their website with the tagline, the SDGs, stupid development goals. And I don't know, I, I put it here as well, you can see the targets that are under goal 16 and you can see the goal itself. And I put them up there because I feel like just look, looking at it, you can see goal 16, how many words it's got. And then you look at the targets, how vague they are. So it's very easy for many people just to dismiss this as a wish list rather than an actual plan of action. And I think that's an observation that goes beyond Goal 16 and applies to the whole of this framework. And there's a very real risk of this kind of being ineffective and perhaps it's already happened. I think Craig mentioned earlier about the jaw war and the SDGs has been very much a victim of the jaw war. Um, it's worth stressing that people who have worked on this process get very defensive when these kind of criticisms are made. They're perhaps justified, but what they would say back to you is that this is a process that's involved 193 member states, thousands of other organisations, and arriving at a consensus has been incredibly arduous, and that's reflected in the wording. They'd also say that even if you look at Goal 16, it's a work in progress. Negotiations are still ongoing. There's a Heads of State Summit in September. Who knows when the Heads of State come and they look at 169 targets and they say, what is this? And they might themselves start negotiating. Who knows? And then there's also the exercise of translating these goals and targets into the national context, which will give it, hopefully, more meaning. And then the idea of the ambitions of Goal 16, but also other goals, they are dependent on political will. So the accusation level that this is a wish list, I think it's true to some extent. But the idea is that in September, you have a whole gamut of world leaders who go to New York, and they sign or they endorse the document, and it goes away from the New York bubble and it goes all over the world. And yes, there are issues in Goal 16 which are controversial, but it gives civil society policymakers something to work towards. So that's some of the reasoning, uh, some of the arguments about the SDGs. And I think what Jonathan mentioned about the framing of Goal 16 is a very valid one and something I'd like to return to. But as it's been mentioned, I've been working on the BRICS uh, position on the post-2015 discussion and specifically how they've been engaging on Goal 16. So I want to give you a little bit of insight into that. And I should say, this is, not, this is all based on personal conversations and engagement, so do uh, feel free to kind of question me on it. I'd say, firstly, that the BRICS, even if it's unsaid, identify themselves as the leaders of the global South, particularly in terms of protecting its interests. And that's been very salient within the post-2015 discussions. But this assumed leadership role has posed a number of problems, and it relates to what can be termed, I think, their double identity. And to give you a sense of this, what it means, I want to kind of recall the fact about the new G7 Plus with a greater purchasing power parity than the original G7, and that includes India, which at the same time coexists with the fact that the poorest eight states in India contain more poor people than the 26 poorest states in sub-Saharan Africa. And I think Sen wonderfully encapsulated this, these contradictions, describing India as islands of California in a sea of sub-Saharan Africa. And I've heard variations of this phrase applied to all of the BRICS. And so in the context of the post-2015 negotiations, this double identity has meant I pose some challenges. There are some issues where BRICS interests have actually diverged 
from that of developing countries as represented through the G77, and indeed in some cases where they're much closer to developed countries in a way that wasn't the case with the original MDGs. So this leads to my kind of second broad point about the BRICS participation in these negotiations, and one that could be termed denied divergence. And it's where officials will strongly emphasise solidarity with the position of developing countries as represented by the G77. And this, to some extent, enables them to portray themselves as developing countries rather than emerging powers, and thereby avoid taking some actions that they might not otherwise have to do. And I should add that this is a very deeply cynical perspective of how the BRICS have engaged in this process. And I should also add explicitly that BRICS do have shared interests with developing countries, and there are very real factors that mean they are leaders. But I'm seeking to highlight how BRICS positions and behaviours are evolving as they rise and are likely to evolve as they continue to rise. Finally, I want to take a quick look at goal 16. So I apologise for the many, many words on the slide. But um, kind of what do the BRICS say about peace, governance and justice issues within the context of the SDGs? At present, the BRICS is supportive of all the SDGs, which by implication means Goal 16 as well. However, not in the not-so-distant past, the BRICS have been quite resistant to its inclusion, and before Goal 16 existed, they were generally opposed to the idea of a standalone goal on these issues, but in favour, in some cases, of having some of the targets under other goals. The reason for their opposition has been varied, and some of it has stemmed, perhaps a lot of it, from who's been pushing for the inclusion of these issues. A lot of EU, the US, developed countries, but actually one of the most vocal actors in favour of the Goal 16 has been the UK, and that stems from when Cameron was uh, one of the co-chairs on the high-level panel on the post-2015 agenda and came up with this idea of the, the golden thread. And BRICS have held back their support for Goal 16 for leverage in other areas because they know that this is something that's wanted and hoping to extract some kind of concessions on financing for development. But generally I'd characterise there being five different types of opposition and sources of concern about Goal 16. Again, they overlap and the emphasis on what aspect really just depends on what official you're talking to. But the first point would be that Post-2015, specifically, Goal 16 has become a proxy for wider discontent. To some within the BRICS, the post-2015 discussion presented an opportunity to challenge the ordering of the wider global governance architecture. Discussions around UN Security Council reform, much vaunted but not actually delivered IMF reform promised in 2010. There is also a wider, frequently voiced frustration with Western approaches to international peace and security. And within the BRICS, actually, one of the most potent examples that keeps coming up is the case of Libya, Brazil, which helped to craft the R2P principle, which was invoked to start NATO's bombing campaign. South Africa, diplomatically embarrassed when it voted for the no-fly zone, and then later stated it didn't understand how it was used. China and India, who lost many of their economic interests in Libya. And this, was, this is another quote from that same Indian policymaker. He said, please remember that a people cannot be forced to be free or to practice democracy. They have to come to these values themselves if they are to be lasting. Such a crusade for one's values is often mistaken by others as the pursuit of self-interest couched in high-toned words. We have seen how high-sounding phrases like the right to protect are selectively invoked and brutally applied in the pursuit of self-interest, giving humanitarian and international intervention bad name. It goes beyond Libya. That sentiment applies to Syria, ISIS, Ukraine, and the war on terror as a whole. 
And essentially, the BRICs, they're sceptical about how Western countries have promoted normative agendas, which is then seen to flagrantly abuse. These grumblings are nothing new, but they've been invoked in the context of post-2015 discussions, and in particular on Law 16, and they've muddied the water, regardless of the potential benefits of the approach being promoted through Goal 16. Next, I look at kind of traditional concerns, and I turn these kind of patronizingly as traditional because they've been applied to a lot of areas within the post-2015 discussions, and mainly around, if we include Goal 16 on peace, governance, and justice, well, it could lead to a violation of countries' sovereignty. And I've heard senior South African negotiators say, if we agree for Goal 16, we're going to give you an opportunity to invade another country. And to that, I tend to say, well, firstly, that post-2015 is a voluntary, non-binding framework, and there's nothing in it which allows for military intervention. But again, it's still a source of opposition. There's also been intellectual opposition to the idea of Goal 16. And this has actually been very, very strong. And it's the idea, it's the starting point is development leads to peace, not vice versa. And in this view, poverty and inequality are the key drivers of conflict. I think this is a continuation of a wider debate about the evolution of development that goes way back, 40 years plus, and it's not over yet. Then I'd go to kind of what I term procedural and structural opposition, and this is, the first point is the fact you mentioned in your introduction that how the post-2015 agenda came into being, it started in Rio, and the Rio there were three pillars of sustainable development. Issues of peace, government and justice weren't a pillar, and therefore they can't be part of these discussions. There are a lot of reasons why that's not the case. And then another one, which I think is important in the context of what we've been discussing, is that the idea that peace, governance, and justice issues, they're already dealt with by the existing peace and security architecture. My typical response to this is, it's not about reconfiguring an existing institution. This is about kind of mainstreaming a preventative approach to conflict. And this is a good vehicle to do that. And then there are a lot of what I would call concerns about Goal 16, and I agree with some of these. And the first one is the most important one, I think which is about the idea of securitization of the development agenda. If we agree Goal 16, the de development agendas become entwined with national security agenda. And I've got it on a previous slide, but uh, if you look here, I think um, 16A says, strengthen relevant national institutions, including through international cooperation for building capacities at all levels, in particular in developing countries, for preventing violence and combating terrorism and crime. And this idea of combating terrorism is where I think we can get into that kind of realisation of the securitised agenda. The other argument is that when we look at Goal 16 issues, they're relevant to only a minority of countries, but I think hopefully I've been able to demonstrate why they do have a, a broader application. And this very much goes to what Jonathan's been saying. One of, it's sad that Brazil was the country to say it, and they invoked it strategically to undermine negotiations rather than any genuine desire to fight for a reframing of the peace agenda saying that Goal 16 is selective. Where's issues of military intervention? Where's the use of sanctions? Where's military expenditure? Where's nuclear weapons? Brazil brought that up, but they didn't mean it, which is so tragic. And then the idea that Goal 16 can't be measured. As you said, what gets, what gets measured gets done, and the BRICS are still fighting the argument that peace, governance, and justice issues can't be measured. And this is actually where most of the negotiations are being fought now. And then finally, again, Brazil, said that the inclusion of certain targets like the reduction of violence will stigmatise certain countries. No surprise that Brazil had one of the highest homicide rates and are saying that. And I say again, I think the MDGs made a lot of other countries look bad, but it didn't kind of stop us doing it. And it showed where international cooperation and assistance was required. So clearly there's a lot of source of opposition and concerns. 
I should mention again that there's a briefing outside which kind of provides a lot of detail on each of these opposition concerns, but also some of the arguments that have uh, been used in the battle, and I'd be happy to elaborate on any of them. I, say, I guess the question is, what does this tell, tell us? I think firstly it's worth reminding ourselves that the BRICS have, albeit grudgingly, accepted Goal 16, and it, but it still means that there's a lot of work to do to actually ensure that all of this translates into actual political will to tackle these issues, and that's not just BRICS specific. It's a problem that goes to the whole MDG, uh, SDGs at the moment. If you look at any, I'm sure many of you have been in many development planning ministries, if you present them 17 goals, 169 targets, some don't even have computers, so it, it's ridiculous. But I would kind of move on to the point of saying that it's worth reminding ourselves that the distance between the BRICS and the rest is not as far apart as we'd like to think. Brazil, for example, which has led the opposition to goal 16 in the past, just in another forum, pretty much at the same time, said, in the Brazilian perspective, as we have many times defended, long-lasting peace can only be achieved when the root causes of conflicts are effectively considered. Peace results from collective effort aimed at building just societies. We have long underscored the interdependence between peace, security, and development. Stability and security are seldom achieved where social and political exclusion and extreme poverty thrive. I think we're all in agreement, which is the tragedy of Goal 16, that it's kind of become proxy to a lot of these concerns. Finally, I'd close by uh, kind of touching on something that crosses into what Jonathan is calling common good, and this term beyond aid, which has become fashionable in the development and peace-building world of late. And here in the UK, the International Development Committee, looking ahead to what DFID needs to do in the future, released a report beyond aid. And what does it mean? It means while aid has an important role to play, we need to look at the beyond aid agenda. How we bring about effective international action to tackle shared problems. And the answer to this isn't all about money. And in fact, money will probably make things worse, especially when we look at some of the things in Goal 16. It's about building consensus, global consensus. Through frameworks like the post-2015 agenda, it's so far from perfect, we don't know what its implications might be. It might suggest I think the idea of this common good, if that might be something else. But I don't think the problem we're experiencing with the SDGs mean that we should give up. In fact, we need to redouble down on these efforts. Thank you very much.